All right, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to continue our series this morning on uh, the Ten Commandments. And we looked last week um, with, uh, the, at the Fourth Commandment uh, regarding the Sabbath day. And I told you last week that we were going to come back to this and, and do another one on this. Uh, and so I want to turn our attention to uh, what I think is the, the essential New Testament passage for us in, in terms of understanding what remains for us in, in regard to the Sabbath day. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to come back and read this text more fully uh, here in a bit, but let's just begin uh, by reading verses 9 and 10. Hebrews 4 verses 9 and 10, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So you remember last week we said, and, and really the main sort of point of, of last week's sermon, was that the Sabbath command was a positive command uh, and, and not, first of all, a moral command. Uh, and that new covenant believers are not obligated to observe it in a literal way but does continue to instruct us, teaching us important spiritual truths. That was kind of the, the thesis statement last week. So, so the argument here is, this is one thing that I said, the argument here is that the Sabbath, Sabbath was a positive command that was specifically tied to the Old Covenant. It has sp spiritual significance for us that we continue to learn from, but it is not literally observed in the new covenant so after i preached last week i got some feedback and i thought it was good and uh and people were asking you know why is this one of the ten commandments which are normally thought to be moral commandments if if it really isn't a moral commandment if it is a a positive command and and i want to the reason i sort of read those two quotes from you last week is because i want to just highlight something that i said a, a very important word that i inserted in there and that is that we do not observe this in a literal way i said that several times and what do i mean when i say that uh I talk about a literal observance of the sabbath day well i mean an actual week of the day uh, day of the week, rather, uh, the seventh day on which we literally take a physical rest from all work and recreation and devote the entirety of the day to public and private worship. I, I think that we saw six, in my estimation, very sound reasons and, and more could be given why we don't literally observe the Sabbath day in, in the New Covenant. But this week, what I want to do uh, is come back and, and show that although uh, we're not under this commandment as a moral commandment to, to literally observe the Sabbath command, yet there is a moral component to this command. There, there is something that is abiding. There is something that does remain, and that is, namely, the, the spiritual application that is taught by this positive command. You, you remember when, when we talked about what positive commands are, uh, we, we said that, that a positive command was, was a special command that was given to God. It wasn't of a moral nature like don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Those are moral things tied to the very character of God. Uh, but a positive command was something in addition to the moral law that God spe specially commanded for his people to observe 
and, and that there was some spiritual significance tied to these kinds of commands. Positive commands in the Old Covenant, we, we see, were designed to point us ultimately forward to Christ in various ways. So what I would say is that while the physical or the sort of externals of this command have been abrogated or, or done away with, yet the greater truth, the spiritual truth, is still in force. So, just again, so that we're on the same page of the, the argument that I'm making here, is that it would be much like the, the sacrificial system. We know, and we just went through the book of Hebrews, if you don't know that we're not under the sacrificial system anymore, uh, it's time to wake up, maybe turn your hearing aid up or something. We went through the whole book of Hebrews, and that came up over and over and over again. Uh, but but in, in a similar way, right? The, the sacrificial system was a positive command that God gave to his people. They were religious rites and ceremonies that were given, that were meant to point us forward to Jesus Christ. And once Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled that, he was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Uh, he, he was the, the, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one who was the substitutionary atonement for us. Once he came and fulfilled that, right, all of the Old Testament sacrificial system ceased to be in force. It's not that we don't read back on the sacrificial system. Some of you are reading through your Bible and you read it and, and you appreciate it and you understand why God gave it. And as you reflect on it, it points you forward to Jesus Christ and you think about what he's done for you on the cross and laying down his life for you. But, but we don't continue to offer sacrifices as part of our regular worship. That has come to an end. And, and what I'm saying is that the Sabbath is, is similar to that. It was given under the old covenant. It was given for the purpose of pointing us forward to Christ. And now that Christ has come, who is the substance of what it pointed forward to, we don't literally observe it any longer. And yet there remains a spiritual truth that continues to teach us and instruct us. So we could say then in this commandment is that there's something, there was something in the fourth commandment that was provisional and there was something that was permanent. There was something that was provisional, that is temporary, given for a time, and there was something that is permanent. The provisional is the literal observance of it, that pointed forward to Christ, and, and the permanent is that spiritual truth that, that we learn uh, and that continues to instruct our mind. So we need to remember at one of our principles when we sort of did laid out how we interpret the Ten Commandments, and, and we said that we have to receive the law in the hands of Christ. In other words, we have to, when we're coming to the law, we have to interpret it and understand it in light of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And what we hopefully are seeing in all of these commands is that in one way or another, Jesus really transforms all of the commandments. It, it just so happens with this fourth commandment uh, that there's a bit more of a transformation uh, that, that that transformation is, is a bit greater than perhaps it is with some of the other commandments. So the argument is that the literal observance of this commandment is abrogated, but that there is an abiding spiritual truth which remains for us today. And I don't want to re-preach the sermon that I preached last week, but, but you remember that we said that in the New Testament, this is the only commandment that is never reiterated in the New Testament. And in fact, we went a step further to look at several, three different passages uh, in the letters of the Apostle Paul, Romans and, and Galatians and Colossians, 
that all seem to reference either directly or indirectly the Sabbath day. And when he, direct, when he directly references the Sabbath day, he actually says that it was a shadow of things to come and that Christ is the substance. That's what he says in Colossians chapter 2. And, and so Paul makes this, this very case that, that we have made uh, here this morning. And in, in addition to that, he seems to say that the observance of, a, of the Sabbath day in Romans chapter 14 is, is actually a, an issue that we can agree to disagree on. Someone might want to observe a special day. Another one wants to observe every day alike. And, and Paul doesn't say this person is right and this person is wrong. Because that Sabbath commandment and a literal sort of observance of it has ceased to exist, that there should be no judgment about this person was working on the Sabbath day or this person didn't keep this holy day. There can be none of that in the church. And then when we come to Hebrews chapter 4, which is really the only, the only place in the New Testament uh, where, where anything is said of the Sabbath that, that would kind of be an abiding sort of application to us, what we find is that the writer of the book of Hebrews, what, what does he do with this commandment? He spiritualizes it. In other words, he takes this literal observance and he says this was meant to teach us a spiritual truth and, and to encourage us to believe in Christ. He spiritualizes this commandment and applies it to Christ. That's why I said Hebrews chapter 4 is really one of the most important passages that, that we can look at because it's really one of the only passages in the New Testament uh, that, that seeks to demonstrate any kind of abiding significance for the Sabbath day in terms of New Covenant Believers, when we come to this text that I just read, you, you can read it again. We're, we're going to read more of this in chapter 3 and chapter 4, but just read that again. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What we're going to see in this passage in Hebrews chapter 4 is that the Sabbath rest of Hebrews 4 uh, is, is sort of a spiritual, there's a spiritual truth to it. Uh, it, it has in mind uh, the idea that we would cease from our willful rebellion and unbelief and that we would then trust in Christ and by doing that we would thereby enter into the peace that comes by being in right fellowship with God. We cease from the works of our sin, and as we cease from the works of our sin and rebellion and rest and trust in Christ, we enter into this spiritual rest uh, that is offered in Christ. And it's the rest that comes when God's people are in right fellowship or in right relationship with God. So, what I want to do is just walk through uh, this passage here, and let me just uh, let, let me just sort of outline the argument that is given, and then we're going to read the text, okay? So this is drawn from the Old Testament account uh, of the children of Israel. Uh, and you remember the story, after they've been delivered from slavery, they come out into the wilderness, and God has promised them this land. It is a land of rest. It is a land uh, where they would go and they would be blessed by God. Uh, but there are inhabitants there, and God has told them that they're to drive out the inhabitants of this land and that he was going to give it to them. But they send in these spies, and the spies come back, and they say, there are giants in this land, they're, they're, they have great armies, great walls. There's no way that we could go in and conquer this land, although God had given them the promise that he would do this for them. 
And so they failed to believe God. And because they failed to believe and trust in God, and they rebelled against him, refusing to go in and take the land, God said, they will not therefore go into the land. They shall not enter my rest. Again, the, the land of Canaan is a, a land of promise. It's a land uh, that's pictured as a land of rest. And so God said that that generation would not enter into that land of rest. Their rebellion and unbelief kept them from entering into God's promises. And this text that we're about to read then picks up on another passage that cites that whole scenario, Psalm 95. Uh, and, and David wrote in his day, reflecting on those events and, and drawing from that incident, David wrote in his days in Psalm 95 that his readers should not respond in that way. Don't, don't respond with the same unbelief of that wilderness generation. Don't, don't respond in rebellion. Instead, rest and trust in God because there, there remains a rest for you to enter into. And now the writer of Hebrews is doing the very same thing. He's taking both that original incident, the wilderness wanderings, and the people who refused to go into the promised land, and he's taking this passage from Psalm 95, from, from David, and he's encouraging you, and he's encouraging me that, that you've received good news. You've received a promise, just like that generation did, and you need to respond in faith. You, you need to trust in Christ. And by trusting in Christ, by ceasing from your rebellion and your unbelief against God, you will enter into this rest. You will enter into the promises that God has made to you. So let's read this passage, and let's actually jump back uh, and read at, at chapter 3 uh, and, and verse number 6. Let's do this, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are that house if indeed we hold fast our confession and confidence, our, our confidence rather, and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and now he's going to quote from Psalm 95, as I've mentioned, he's quoting Psalm 95 that David wrote. He says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. That's that earlier incident in the wilderness. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. What is the rest? It's the promised land. They refused to believe and trust in God and they rebelled against his command to go in and take the land. And so God said of that generation, they will not enter the promised land. They won't enter my rest. And now the writer of Hebrews turns it back to you and to me. And he says, based on that example, based on what David says in Psalm 95, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In other words, he's taking the fact that David wrote this and he said, today, if you hear his voice, and, and he's saying it to you today. 
It's, it's today. If you hear the voice of Christ today, if you hear the voice of God through his word, don't harden your heart. Don't be rebellious. Don't be unbelieving like that generation in the wilderness. Instead, believe it. Receive the word and rest in this promise that you hear. And he goes on to say, for we, for, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? You remember they stayed in the desert for 40 years until that generation passed away. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, don't make the same mistake. You've received the promise of God. You've received an invitation to enter into his rest. Don't respond with, with unbelief and with rebellion. And so don't, don't respond in that same way. And he says here in verse number two, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later, later on. So then... Now, here's, here are those verses now in that context, right? So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest had all, has also rested from his works as God did from his. The Sabbath rest is this promise of God that, that we enter into when we hear the word of God and when we believe. What, what is that rest? Well, well, we can see in this passage there, there are two words that are used when it repeatedly says rest over and over again. The, the first word is a word in verse 18. We, we could look back to chapter 3, verse 18. He says, and to whom did they swear that they would not enter his rest? You could see that same word in chapter 4, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 3, two times, in chapter 4, verse 4, 5, and 8. <clears throat> and that word for rest means a place of rest, a place of rest. It's, it's the idea of this ideal place that when you enter in, it's a place of peace. It's a, a place where you're able to, to experience the rest of God. Uh, of course, that was the land of Canaan, right? That was the promised land. The land of Canaan was to be a place of rest. They would have rest from their enemies. They would have rest from uh, sort of the effects of the curse in the land because God would bless the land. God's blessing would be upon them. And so there's this place of rest but then there's also a day of rest. There's a second word that is used in this text to refer to rest, and that is what we see in verses 9 and 10. 
And it's the word sabbatismos, which is just the Greek word for Sabbath. And that's what he says. There remains a Sabbath day. There remains a rest for the people of God. There's this promise of entering into God's rest. So what is this rest? Well, it's clearly a symbolic rest. As I mentioned earlier, it's this, this idea or this concept of rest is, is spiritualized. In the Bible, Sabbath rest symbolizes the peace experienced by God's people who are in right relationship with him. We, we notice that all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's what, that's what the peace is. Adam and Eve are there. They're in right relationship with God. There's no sin. The, the world is as it should be. Uh, their relationship is, is wonderful. They have fellowship with the Lord. They are experiencing rest. They are, Eden is, is a place uh, of rest and a place of peace. But sin enters into that world, right, when Adam and Eve rebel against him. And what happens? The peace is gone. The rest is gone. There's turmoil in their relationships. There's a curse now on the earth so that the earth does not produce like it's supposed to. Work is made difficult. There's, there's broken fellowship between them and God and between uh, mankind within humanity. There's brokenness all over. Peace is gone. But then as we move forward in the Bible, we see that God initiated a plan of redemption through Christ. And as we've said before, that he prepared, he began preparing his people for this work through the giving of the old covenant. And in that old covenant, he gave various pictures of that rest that pointed back to Eden and that ultimately we know points forward to Christ and what he brings about. There was the, the land of, of Canaan. That was a land of rest. God said, you'll have rest from your enemies. He, he promised that when you plant crops, they'll grow. The, the very thing that God brought the curse upon Adam and Eve and said that land would not produce its crops, now he's saying this is going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. The, the world is sort of going to be restored in this promised land, in this place of rest. But then God also gave them a day of rest. The Sabbath was a, a weekly reminder that they had been redeemed from slavery. You see, when they were in slavery uh, in, in Egypt, there was no rest. They were slaves. They had to work all the time. And God reminded them, I've brought you out. Now, you're, you're no longer in bondage. You're no longer enslaved. I've set you free, and I'm, I'm giving you rest. I, I, I'm making you restful. In these pictures of rest, God was inviting his people to obey him, and by so doing, to know the restfulness of being in right fellowship with God. But what we find in the Bible, and you know your Old Testament, that those symbols of Sabbath rest, they, they remain symbolic. The, the people of the Old Covenant did not ever fully experience that, that restfulness. They sinned against God. They continued in their rebellion, as it just said here. They will not enter my rest. And, and that generation didn't. And even the next generation that went into the land of rest and observed the rest days, the Sabbath days, they didn't fully experience the restfulness either because they continued to sin against God. And ultimately, they were exiled out of the land of rest. And that's where Jesus comes in. He comes in as the second Adam and as the true Israel. And through his obedience to the Father, Jesus earned the right to enter into God's presence and to be in right relationship with God and to himself enjoy the rest that God gives 
to his people. And when Jesus completed his work on this earth, on the cross, dying and rising again, he ascended back to heaven and he is, what is it the Bible says? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's in a place of rest. His work has been accomplished. And now you and I are invited by believing and trusting in Christ to enter into that rest. That's the invitation. That's sort of the the bigger theological perspective on on this passage. But as we kind of dig into it and into this specific passage, uh, we notice here that the writer of Hebrews is really writing to to Jewish people. He's writing to Jewish Christians who have gone away from the sacrificial system and the temple and and even the Sabbath days. They've moved away and they've believed in Christ, but we know, and you know from going through the book of Hebrews now, they're tempted to drift back toward Judaism. And, And so isn't it astounding then that the writer of Hebrews does with the Sabbath what he does with every other ceremonial part of the Old Testament. What what did he do with the sacrifices? He said, that was a picture, it pointed to Christ. He's the sacrifice that atones for our sins. What, What about the priest? Jesus is our high priest, and he's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. What about the temple? Jesus is the temple. All of these things, the writer of Hebrews just says, this points to Jesus in this way. This points to Jesus in that way. And, and, And the invitation is always... See that picture and believe in Christ. Don't go back to the shadow. Don't go back to what that promise was and and what that picture was. Instead, believe in Christ. And we notice in this text, he's doing the very same thing with the Sabbath. When he says there, there now remains a Sabbath day, he isn't telling these Jewish people, you need to go back and begin observing the Sabbath again. No, he's saying to them what he said about the temple and the priest and the sacrifices and everything else. He's saying Christ is the fulfillment of this Sabbath. Believe in him. Trust in him. Turn away from your works of rebellion and unbelief and find your rest in Jesus Christ. He uses this this word that there would be no mistake about them when he says in verse number nine, there remains a Sabbath rest. He isn't saying continue to observe the Sabbath day, but that's what they that's what have automatically come to their mind. These were Jewish people who the entirety of their life had observed the Sabbath, but he's not telling them to go back and start those observances again. He's telling them trust in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. There's a Sabbath rest that comes by being in right relationship with God. And that is only found through Jesus Christ. And so how do we enter that rest? That's the rest that is held out. That's the rest that is symbolized by the Sabbath. How do we enter that rest? Well, I see two things in this text. First of all, we must cease from our works of rebellion and unbelief. We must cease from our works of rebellion and unbelief. Look at verse number 10. He says, For whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his works as God did from his. So he's saying if you've entered in to the rest, this Sabbath rest that was symbolized by the Sabbath days in the Old Testament, that you have ceased from your works. What are the works that you and I have ceased from in order to enter into the rest of God? Well, I think it's clear from the text that they're works of unbelief. They're works of 
of disobedience. Go back to chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 once more. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. You see, what keeps you out of the rest that God promises is a disobedience, a rebellion against God, a rebellion against what he commands of you. So we see, he says in verse number 19, so we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of their unbelief. You see, their disobedience is fueled by their unbelief. They refuse to believe that God would really give them this promised land. And because they refuse to believe God's promises, they refuse to enter into the promised land as God had commanded them to do. And so you and I, if you're to enter this promised rest that is held out to you today, you must repent and turn from your works of disobedience that are really fueled by your unbelief concerning God's promises. How do we enter that rest? Well, we cease from our works of rebellion and unbelief. Calvin says this. He says, we must completely, in order that we must rest completely in order that God may work within us. We must set our own will aside. We must resign our heart deny and forsake all the desires of the flesh. In short, we must cease from everything which our own minds suggest to us so that with God working within us, we may be at one with him. That's the invitation this morning. That's how you enter into the rest that God promised when you cease to, to do your own works, when you cease to live by your own will, and instead you rest and allow God to work within you the second thing though not only do we rest from our works of rebellion and unbelief but secondly we believe and trust in the gospel message look at verses one through three of chapter four he says therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it for good news came to us just as to them. What is that good news? Well, the good news to them was God's giving you a land. There's this land of peace and rest, and it's yours, and God's going to provide it for you. God's going God's to miraculously give it over to you. And they, di they didn't believe it. What's the good news that has come to us? It's a much greater good news. This word good news here, by the way, is the word gospel, euangelion. It's the word for gospel. The gospel has come to you. What is the good news for you? The good news for you is that Jesus has died for your sins so that you can be forgiven and that you can enter into heaven, the eternal place of true rest. And so good news has come to us just as it, has, just as it came to them. But the message they heard didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So how do you enter the rest? Well, first, you cease from your works of rebellion and unbelief. And secondly, you believe the gospel message. You believe what God has promised you in Jesus Christ. You look to Christ and you trust in him. And by trusting in him, you enter into the rest that God has promised. And when we do that, we instantly come into the rest of Christ. That's the invitation that that Jesus gives to us. I quoted uh, last week or a couple weeks ago from Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. That's the invitation, isn't it? 
Come unto me, Jesus says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You enter into the rest of God by coming to Jesus Christ, coming to him in, in the Gospels. It, it means simply coming to him in faith, believing in him and trusting in him. And when you do that, you enter into the rest of God. There's a rest that comes into your soul the moment that you believe in Christ. There's a peace that passes all understanding that is given to you by the Lord when you believe and trust in Him. But this isn't just some kind of mystical peace within your heart. We know that the, the future promises that we will enter into the land of, of peace. We will enter into heaven where there will be true and complete peace in a literal way. There will be no more restlessness there. So we sort of apply this this morning. What, one of the things that I want you to see, that's sort of what this calls us to. It calls us to rest and trust in Christ. But those who experience this kind of Sabbath rest, those who rest and trust in Christ, it, it, this kind of rest produces something in your heart. You know, when, when I say that this fourth commandment isn't literally observed anymore. I think we as Christians, sometimes we bristle against that because we say, what about worship? If we tell people that the fourth commandment uh, isn't in force anymore, will, will people still gather on Sundays to worship? Will, will people take the rest that they need to take? Those are the things that we think about. Don't we need a commandment that, that commands us to gather together on the Lord's day, as we call it? Well, listen, I think this is the way it works. This is the, the motivation in the gospel. In the gospel, we're not so much motivated by commandments as we're motivated for love, by love for Christ. We're, we're motivated by, as Paul says, I appeal to you in chapter Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, the appeal of the New Testament is look at what Christ has accomplished. Look at what Christ has done for you. And now, out of that, let, let obedience flow out of the grace of God. And that's exactly what I think happens in, in terms of this commandment. I, I don't think God's people, those who are truly experiencing the rest that Christ brings, I don't think they need a great commandment uh, to come and gather for worship. I think this kind of rest that we experience creates worshipers. It, it drives us to desire and to long to worship Christ. That's what it did in the early church. They met, they met together on the Sunday, uh, on the first day of the week, and they didn't do that because there was some command. They did that because that was the day that Christ rose from the dead. They were commemorating that, and so they began the practice of, of meeting on the first day of the week. We see that in the book of Acts them gathering together, and that's where Jesus actually comes and appears to them in the upper room on the first day of the week. We see the Corinthian church gathering on the first day of the week, collecting offerings, and then we see the book of Revelation uh, when, when it speaks of the churches. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, and he saw Christ in the middle of his churches. We have commands like Hebrews 10, 24, not to neglect the meeting uh, together. But we don't meet on Sunday because it's the Christian Sabbath, but because we are commanded to meet together and the apostolic pattern was for the, us to meet on the first day of the week. But hopefully, if your heart is resting in Christ and you've experienced that peace that comes through him, meeting together is not a burden for us, right? 
It's, it's not the law beating us down. You've got to do this. You need to be there. It's because your heart is resting in Christ and you long to meet with Christ. You long to meet with Christ's people and worship Him. And what we need to understand is that it, worshiping Christ, it's, it's such a greater reality because we don't even just worship Him on one day of the week. In fact, Paul says in that passage that I mentioned earlier in Romans chapter 14, Romans 14 Five and six, he says, one day, one person esteems one day as, as greater than another, and, and another person esteems every day alike. But what does he say? Whether you esteem one day or every day, you need to, you need to honor every day as to the Lord. The one person observes that day in honor to the Lord. The one who eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to to God. So every single day for us as new covenant believers, every single day should be a Sabbath day. Every single day should be a day of worship. Every single day should be a day that is devoted to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not just for an hour on Sunday. We, we don't just come for one hour and say, I've done my duty now for the week. I've worshiped Christ. And now the rest of the week is mine. Or, or even some, some people, it's just one hour. I've done one hour and now all the rest of the seven days are mine. No, no. For the new covenant believer who has experienced the, the rest that God gives, it produces worship in us and it's a worship that isn't just one day of the week or one hour of one day of the week, but it's every day of the week. The one who has come to find rest, the rest of God through Jesus Christ, are not merely called to give a single day to Christ, but they are called to give every single day to Christ. The early church, in fact, in the book of Acts, we see them meeting, not just one day of the week. Yes, they did gather, and it seems to be a special gathering on Sunday, but we see them meeting daily, house to house. They're, they're coming together because their hearts are so overfilled with the work of Christ. I think that's a a long way away from where we are, which is really a sad state of affairs in the church today when, when it's, we can barely get an hour a week, right? Well, I guess we should go to church. We didn't go last week. We, we maybe need to go this week. Listen, when, when you come to truly know Christ and to be resting in Him, worship takes on a priority in your life, not just one day a week, but every day of the week. And what about rest? That's the other thing that we find in this commandment, physical rest. Well, here's something that we need to think about. Again, I don't find a commandment that we've got to have one day where we completely cease from all work. I, I don't think that's in a literal force, but this is the reality. When we are in right fellowship with God, it produces a restfulness in our soul which frees us to rest physically. It's clear, and, and I think we see that principle in that command. It is clear that we as creatures, we need rest, right? We've got to rest every day. There's a cycle of daily rest, but then there's a cycle where we kind of need rest on a, on a weekly basis, and, and I think we see that. But one of the things, really, what is it that, that drives us not to take the rest that we need? Often it's because our souls are not at rest. Often we deceive ourselves into thinking that the peace and the rest that we need will come through working a little bit harder, through accomplishing one more thing, 
through achieving something else. And we're looking for a rest within our soul, but, but, but we do it by working ourselves to death. We believe that the restlessness of our soul and the turmoil in our world can be overcoming by driving ourselves harder and harder into work. And the reality is really that that, that rest comes when we rest in Christ. And as we rest in Christ, it produces a restfulness within our soul. I'm reminded of what Augustine said, and I'm sure you've heard the quote before. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. A soul that is resting and is at peace with God is a soul that can take time to rest physically. As we close this morning, I'll ask you to consider, and I'm going to ask our, our uh, ushers to come forward. We're going to observe the Lord's table this morning. But are you at rest in the Lord? Are you resting in Jesus Christ this morning?